as we read the scripture. Uh, normally you see me walk up here with an electronic device and the batteries on this never die. Amen. And the word never fails. So anyway, our scripture today is uh, from Ephesians chapter six, verses five through nine. Paul says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. Masters do the same to them and stop your threatening knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. Thank you. May be seated. Thank you, Mike. Good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. We're talking about slavery today, which is a chipper little subject, so we will uh, wade in slowly. My name is uh, Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us uh, this morning. A few years ago... I noticed that every time I would go uh, overseas, when I would come back into the States, for some reason, I would always be the guy who would get flagged by security. And, uh, and so you put your passport in the little thing, and then uh, you either get a check mark or you get an X. I would always get an X. I'm not embellishing. I'm a, I'm a preacher. I have embellishing rights, but I'm not doing so. Literally every single time that I would get back into the States, I would always get the X. I'd always get the privilege, the honor of going and waiting in this uh, supremely long line and sitting there for a little bit and then going and talking to a real-life TSA agent who would look at me and look at my passport, then look at me, then look at the passport, then look at me again, then ask me some innocuous questions uh, and then uh, send me on my way. Uh, and so a few years ago, uh, my in-laws took uh, Casey and I on a trip uh, overseas and uh, you got to know something about my father-in-law in particular. By the way, he's here today. I asked him if I could share this. His response is, hey, I'm Italian. So I take that as a yes. <laughs> I, don't, I don't translate that, but uh, so I'll share. So uh, my, my father-in-law in particular, he doesn't like uh, lines or waiting or rules or anything like that. And so he uh, got us this thing called global entry. You might have heard of global entry, but what it does is kind of uh, expedites the immigration process. So he didn't have to wait on us. He just went ahead and bought this uh, for Casey and I. And so the crumbs fall from the master's table and we get to uh, eat of them. And, uh, and so as an added benefit, in addition to getting this expedited immigration process, you also are cleared for TSA PreCheck. And so you might be familiar with that. TSA PreCheck is what you have so that you don't have to take off your jacket or your shoes or your belt or anything else like that. You also don't have to take your liquids or laptops out of your bag, which is super nice. And, uh, and then you also get to, to be in your own line. So you don't have to go in the same line as like the commoners and the peasants and all that kind of stuff. You get your own line. And as you're going through it, TSA agents are just feeding you grapes. And it's just luxurious. And uh, so anyway, we get TSA uh, pre-check. And as an added bonus, we didn't know this at the time, or at least I didn't know this. Uh, ever since then, I was not flagged by uh, security. But on a recent trip with the church to uh, Romania, I came back and I got flagged. Somehow I ended up in the non-global entry 
uh, line. And so it was a very long day. We had to leave our hotel somewhere around 5 o'clock in the morning in Romania, in Bucharest, and, uh, which meant I was up somewhere around 4 a.m. And, uh, and then we uh, drove to the airport, then we were at the airport for a couple of hours waiting for them uh, to allow us even into the terminal. And, uh, and then we got into the terminal, waited a little bit longer, then we flew to London. Then we get to London and we have a couple hours layover there. The, the vast majority of the time we were just going around looking for this one sandwich that I really love when I'm in Heathrow. We finally get that, we go to the gate, we wait there a little bit, then we get on a flight. We, we take about a nine hour flight uh, back to eight or nine hour flight back here. So by the time we get here, I'm just utterly exhausted. And in my sort of sleep deprived state and the fact that I'm also with uh, Carl and his boy uh, Taylor and they've never been out of the country before. And so I'm trying to tell Carl what's actually going to happen and then I'm just making stuff up for Taylor uh, to hopefully get him flagged by security. So I'm telling him absurd things. And, uh, and so somehow in this process, I end up in this sort of normal line, not the global entry uh, line. And sure enough, I get uh, flagged. So I have to go over to uh, this other line. I have to wait there. And, uh, and so I'm exhausted. I'm ready to see my wife. I'm ready to see my daughter. It's been an entire week. And yet I'm in this other line. I get all the way up to the, to the, uh, uh, the front, give him my passport, talk to the TSA agent. As he's running all the stuff, I said, hey, by the way, I, I have global entry. For some reason, I just went in the wrong line. If I ever do that again, like, can I get out of that line and go? And he was like, you should always do global entry if you have it. And in my flesh, I'm thinking, no, duh, of course I should. <laughs> and uh, so I think he's being sarcastic. But then he like, looks at me in the eyes, kind of creepy. And he says, no, you should always do uh, global entry. And the way that he said you made me think, maybe there's a story here. And so I said, what do, you, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, you've probably heard this before. And, uh, and he said, but your name is almost the exact same name as someone else that we're looking for, someone else that's on a certain list. And, uh, and so he said, you should always use Global Entry because that's our way of knowing without having to interview you and go through all that, that you're not actually the person that we're looking for. Now, by the way, he said, you should have heard this before. I've never heard that before. I've never heard that I have like the same name as a terrorist or a serial killer or who knows what else. I don't think Robert Jeffrey Ashley is like an intimidating name. It's like English gentleman with a top hat or something like that. <laughs> But apparently somewhere out there is someone who has a name that's similar to mine, and he is potentially a legitimate threat to our safety or security or whatever it is. I don't know anything about this guy. The reason that I share this story is because I think when we think of the word slavery, in our context, when we hear the concept of slavery, it sets off alarms. It flags us. There's something that happens in our hearts, and all of a sudden, this now becomes an obstacle for safe passage for us, because we begin to wrestle with all of these connotations that we have in our mind, all of these presuppositions, all of these assumptions as far as what slavery is and is not. So whenever we read it in the Bible, it all of a sudden becomes this threat, this threat to our trust in God's Word as being trustworthy and true. And so what I want to do this morning is basically four things. There's four things that I want to accomplish uh, with us in our time this morning. The first one, I want to spend an, ext an extended period of time just delineating, distinguishing ancient slavery from modern slavery because I think a lot of this concern that we have, I think a lot of our flagging of this as being a threat to our hope 
an obstacle to our joy, can be discerned if we can just distinguish the differences between ancient and modern slavery. That's the first thing I want to do. The second thing is, is I want to work through the text uh, in regards to what it meant in its original context. The third thing I want to do is kind of draw a line from that context and what it meant to slaves and masters and kind of a dotted line, how does that apply to us in regards to our own thinking about uh, employment. And then the fourth thing is, is I want to tie all of this into the gospel and show how not only should we not be embarrassed by the mention of slavery in Scripture, but if, if we properly understand it, if we're oriented towards truth correctly, we should actually be edified and encouraged by it. So this is a kind of a mammoth task that we're going to try to undertake uh, this morning. So let's spend a couple of moments just praying. I'd like to first just ask you to pray for yourself and for those around you, just that the Lord would incline your heart to his testimonies. Open your eyes that you might behold wonderful things in God's word. Unite your hearts to fear his name and satisfy us this morning with God's steadfast love. And then after you've prayed for yourself and for those around you, would you pray for me? The Lord give me boldness and faithfulness and clarity. And so, Father, we do come before you and we ask you, Lord, to be gracious to us. Lord, to help us this morning. If, if we come in with distractions, if we come in with presuppositions and assumptions and presumptions, Lord, that are going to make uh, our uh, ability to understand and to appreciate your word more difficult, I pray that you would help us, Lord, that you would remove those obstacles that we might see you and see your glory and goodness and the glory and goodness of your word. We ask these things because you're good and you do good. And so would you help us this morning? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin in uh, chapter 6, verse 5 of Ephesians, which says, Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So let's begin at the beginning with this word, bond servants. Now, most English translations, if you're using something other than the ESV, which is the translation we tend to use uh, for preaching and teaching here at Parkway, if you're using uh, almost any other English translation, it probably has the word slave there. That's the language of the NIV, the NASB, the NLT, the NET, the NRSV, and a number of other acronyms that we could throw out. These are uh, all of the common uh, English translations are going to have the word slave there. And so I think it's really important for us to deal with this word, this concept, this institution, because if we're honest, it's a little off-putting. Like if I were to ask you to raise your hands and, and, and to say, who thinks slavery is good? None of us are going to raise our hands, right? So it's a little off-putting whenever we read of the concept of slavery within Scripture. And so what I want to do is I want to spend some time talking about slaves and slavery because I think when we hear the term, we have this immediate, extreme, visceral sort of reaction to this concept, especially in, uh, in regards to it being here in our sacred Scripture, this blessed book that we love and treasure. I think most of us, when we think of slavery, we have this sort of syllogism that happens in our hearts and minds. First, we think slavery is intrinsically, it's inherently, it's universally immoral and wicked. That's the first part in our minds, this proposition. The second thing that happens is we think, 
Well, but God seems to uh, condone of it, and thus God seems to approve of something that is inherently, intrinsically wicked and uh, immoral. And so third, therefore, we can't trust God or his word. I'm simplifying, of course. But in general, I think these things happen not only in the hearts of skeptics and unbelievers and atheists and so forth, but I think even in our own hearts. This presents, again, this obstacle to our trust in God's authority and goodness, are, are, are an obstacle to our joy in understanding who God is. And so what are we to do with this? When I say the word slavery, I'm reminded of the words of the great philosopher who once said, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> All right, so imagine, if you will, that's Princess Bride, by the way. By the way, in two weeks, it'll be the 30th anniversary of Princess Bride. And uh, so that's just a little fun fact for you. Uh, so imagine, if, if you will, I began to list off similarities between myself and Jerry Halbrook, who's been the pastor here for the past uh, 25 years, all right? I began to just list off similarity after similarity. We're both from Texas. We're both married. We both have a daughter. We're both pastors, both at Parkway, both originally called to Parkway around the age of 38, both live in McKinney, both have graduate degrees from Dallas Theological Seminaries. Both enjoy being outdoors, love scripture, like to fish, have traveled to Romania multiple times, and on and on. Imagine I keep at it, just uh, adding to all of these similarities between Jerry and myself. At any point as I'm doing this, will you all of a sudden go, you know what? They might actually be the same person. It's kind of a Batman, Bruce Wayne, Jekyll and Hyde, George Costanza, Art Vandalay sort of thing. Right? No, of course not. Why? Because although there are all of these sort of dozens upon dozens of areas that we're very similar, we're also very different in other ways. For instance, Jerry thinks that Athens, Texas is the Holy Land. I don't think that. All right? But there are all of these ways that we are similar, but there's also these vast differences that exist between us. Likewise, when we talk about ancient slavery and we talk about modern slavery, they certain, certainly share the same English word, slavery. They share some common characteristics, but at the same time, the differences between the two concepts are striking. So what are these alleged differences between ancient and modern slavery? I'm going to work through a few of them uh, in our time this morning, but here's what I want to do. I know some of you are very type A and you want to write down everything that I say, and let me just give you an opportunity just to breathe easy this morning. Uh, already posted on our website, or if not so, then it will be by the time that you get home uh, later today, is a paper that uh, is going to walk through all of these. So don't feel like you have to write all of these things down. We're going to have a paper on our website, on our blog, uh, that wrestles through that. So, speaking of ancient slavery uh, in general, here's a few characteristics that you'll note are extremely different from the way that we think of slavery in a modern context. First, an enslaved person, again, this is ancient slavery, an enslaved person generally could not be identified by appearance or clothing or race or ethnicity. In other words, it was generally not race-based or gender-based or age-based, as we see in most modern forms of slavery. Second, education of slaves was encouraged, thus enhancing their value. In fact, some slaves were better educated even than their owners. As a result of that, many slaves functioned in highly responsible and sensitive positions such as workshop, household managers, accountants, tutors, personal secretaries, sea captains, and uh, physicians. 
In fact, an important minority of slaves had considerable influence and social power even over freeborn persons of lesser status than the slave's owners. Fourth, by no means were slaves to be found at the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid. Rather, there were free and impoverished persons who had to seek work each day without any certainty of employment, and they occupied the lowest level. Some of them thus sold themselves into slavery in order to uh, obtain job security, food, clothing, and shelter. Slavery was thus preferable to the life of some non-slaves. This is really hard for us to imagine in our sort of give me liberty or give me death, braveheart-infused Americana. But the fact remains that in ancient society, slavery was actually preferable to some other forms of free persons. Uh, in fact, slaves could own property. They could accumulate funds that they might use to purchase their own freedom. In fact, it was required that they receive some sort of payment for their labor beyond what was uh, simply necessary to survive. And a large number of uh, domestic and urban slaves could anticipate being set free. The word there is manumitted. They could uh, expect to be manumitted by the age of 30, becoming freedmen or freed women, and thus becoming not just free, but also being granted Roman citizenship. So the expectation of an ancient slave in the Greco-Roman world was if you were set free, uh, then there was an expectation that you would also have an opportunity to become a, uh, a citizen. In fact, we see this in... Uh, the Bible itself. If you remember in Acts chapter 24, Paul was speaking to a guy named Felix. Uh, Felix was uh, formerly a slave. He was released from slavery and eventually rose all the way to this position of governor. Whenever Paul addresses him, he is uh, the governor of that area. So while this, the movement of someone from a slave all the way up to this high-ranking Roman official would have certainly been irregular, Simply moving from slavery into citizenship would not have been abnormal at all uh, for that context. So those are six huge differences between ancient slavery and modern slavery. I want to put a chart up on the board and walk through a few others. And so this is ancient slavery, the, the context of slavery in the, uh, in the uh, Roman world uh, combined with what we see in Scripture in regards to the prescriptions uh, that are uh, put upon it by the Lord. And so in ancient slavery, uh, you would see masters were required to give uh, food and provisions an appropriate amount. Uh, they were, slaves had access to legal uh, redress. Uh, there was a degree of sexual protection. There was an opportunity for them to, uh, to, to be manumitted or to uh, be released. In fact, not just an opportunity, but an expectation in the vast majority of cases. They were paid for their labor. Uh, they were uh, given opportunities for skilled jobs and education. They were treated justly and fairly. That's more the biblical requirement, not just the cultural requirement. Let's look at the next one. Now contrast that with New World slavery, what most of us tend to think of when we think of slavery, where all of those things are in the negative. There's no appropriate food or provisions. There's no access to legal prote protection. There's no access to protection from sexual predators. There's no opportunity for release. You're not paid for your labor. There's no skilled jobs in education because masters would have feared that, and thus they're not treated justly and fairly. Let's go to the next one. And these are all negative in, the, in ancient slavery. Uh, kidnapping was not allowed for the sake of slavery. Torture and abuse was not allowed. The use of threats were not allowed. And uh, it was uh, required, actually, that you don't return a slave that's escaped uh, 
uh, to its master. And then the next one. And you can see in New World Slavery, all of those things are uh, in the positive. And so these are some vast differences uh, between ancient slavery, the general context and conditions of ancient slavery, and, uh, and modern slavery. Now, I'm not suggesting that every single master or every single circumstance of ancient slavery was ideal, was peachy keen, or anything like that. I'm not saying that ancient slavery was good. I'm just simply saying we need to have a separate category it's almost like we're using the same word, but for a totally different context when we talk about ancient slavery versus uh, modern uh, slavery. In fact, and I think this is very important for us to understand this morning, every single form, as we talk about modern slavery, every single form of modern slavery is explicitly condemned within the pages of scripture. So if someone ever comes to you and they say, you know, the Bible doesn't prohibit slavery, you can say with all confidence, absolutely the Bible does. The Bible absolutely restricts and prohibits all forms of slavery as you're understanding that term today. If the question is, does the Bible uh, explicitly condemn every form of slavery that's ever existed, the answer is no. But if the question is, does the Bible explicitly condemn the forms of slavery that we tend to think of as we use the term today, the answer is a resounding yes. So let me prove that. When I say the word slavery, I imagine you tend to think of one of two things, right? You don't think of Greco-Roman slavery of the first century. You don't think of medieval serfdom, whatever that word means. Uh, you tend to think of one of two things. You think of either the race-based sort of African chattel slavery uh, that was especially prevalent uh, in the U.S. and uh, especially in the southern states, or you think of modern sex trafficking. In general, those are the two concepts. When we think of slavery today, we think of one of those uh, two things. And what is fascinating is both of those are founded upon something that is explicitly condemned within Scripture. So I think there's a couple of reasons that we can say why those two different variants, those two wicked forms of slavery are both explicitly condemned in Scripture. The first reason is because both of those institutions were founded and financed and fueled in large part by kidnapping. Whether the antebellum uh, African slave trade or contemporary sex trafficking, kidnapping was the primary means of enslavement. And this practice of slavery on the basis of kidnapping is explicitly prohibited within Scripture. Exodus 21.16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, shall be put to death. There's not just a regulation, there is a prohibition against kidnapping for the sake of slavery. Deuteronomy 24.7, If a man is found stealing one of his brothers, the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This isn't only in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy 1.10, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, that word literally means man-stealers, liars, perjurers, and anything else that is contrary to sound doctrine. So that's the first reason. The very foundation, the very fuel of contemporary slavery is prohibited explicitly. Second, all of the forms of slavery that we think of today involve abuse, injustice, and oppression all of which were explicitly for hit, forbidden for masters in the New Testament, as we will uh, soon talk about. 
So if we're talking about the African slave trade, if we're talking about uh, the, uh, the, the modern sex trade, the Bible doesn't condone them. It doesn't even regulate them. It explicitly condemns them clearly and consistently. So the Bible condemns modern slavery, but that doesn't solve the problem for us completely. After all, there's still slaves and slavery in the Bible. So I want to ask the question of why? Why doesn't it just eradicate any and all forms of slavery? That's what I want to do in our uh, next couple of moments. Why does it regulate ancient slavery rather than eradicate it entirely? Uh, and again, we're posting a, a, a blog on the website that should help uh, kind of wrestle through this a bit more. We can't exhaust this uh, up on stage. But here are a few quick thoughts. First, we need to understand that this, the Bible, is always written within a particular time and place. It's not written within a vacuum. It's written within a particular context. In this case, it's written within the context of the Roman Empire of the first century. And this empire had a vested interest in preserving the status quo as it relates to slavery because they were economically and socially dependent upon slave labor. As a result, there were a number of laws that were passed that regulated the release of slaves. For example, in 2 BC, uh, in the Roman Empire, there is the law that is passed that regulated the number of slaves you were allowed to release. It said something like this. If you had three slaves, up to three slaves, you could only release two of them. You had to keep the third. If you had between four and ten slaves, you could only release half of them. You had to keep the rest. If you had between 11 and 30, you could only release a third of them. You had to keep the rest. And on and on we could go. This was a legal requirement within the Roman uh, Empire. Then, a few years later, in 4 AD, another law was passed that limited the rights of any slaves that were released under the age of 30, and it required a formal legal process to release them. So in other words, you couldn't just go to your slave and say, I release you, you are now free. You had to go before the courts, you had to go and you had to, to, to do something that was uh, very uh, economically difficult for you to go through the process of, of freeing them, and then you had to wait until they were 30. If you decided to go through the process and release someone from slavery before the age of 30, in all likelihood, because of this law, they would never, for the rest of their life, be able to attain Roman citizenship. The implication of that is for the rest of their life, then they're going to be susceptible. They're going to be vulnerable to oppression. In all likelihood, they probably would have to retell themselves into slavery in order to survive. So the reason I, uh, I say that is because if you are a slave owner in the first century, imagine that you're a slave owner in the first century and you come to faith. You come to faith and you're wondering, what do I do with my slaves. I've come to faith now. What do I do with it? You might genuinely wrestle with what is most loving. You could release your slaves, some of them being underage. Uh, you're going to then break the law if you release all of your slaves. You're also going to, for those that are underage, for those that are not granted Roman citizenship, you're going to make them vulnerable and susceptible to injustice and oppression. They might resell themselves into slavery, this time to a harsh, unjust, unloving, unkind, unchristian master. And so you're wrestling with the implications of this decision and you might legitimately, legitimately come to the conclusion what's most loving, what's most gracious, what's most kind is to keep your slaves in a state of slavery at least for a season 
where you can be kind to them, you can be generous to them, you can be gracious to them, and you can work in the long term for their freedom. So I think that helps us to kind of orient ourselves within this particular context and understand this sort of crisis of convictions, this conflict of interest that a uh, slaveholder might be feeling within the context of the first century. So that's one of the reasons that Paul doesn't just universally, unilaterally say, you should, as a Christian slave owner, you should just immediately release all of your slaves because you're breaking the law and you're potentially making them uh, more vulnerable and susceptible to these things. But he will do things like when he writes to Philemon and says that, uh, uh, that uh, he should release his slave Onesimus, which Philemon seems to have done. Or while he'll write in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be conserved about, concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. In other words, he's writing, we are to have one master, and that is Jesus Christ. That is a huge theological statement. And if you wrestle with the implications, what you actually see here is that Paul has untied the knot. He's untied the knot of slavery in such a way that if you really wrestle with the implications of what he's saying, the institution is bound to unravel over time. So rather than eradicate it entirely and immediately, what Paul does is instead he curbs the abuses from within. He seeks to reform it from within in such a way, kind of inserting this virus within the program of slavery so that it would eventually crumble uh, on its own. So we're like halfway finished with our time, and we've only talked about one word, but I think this digression, again, is really important for us to understand the context, and, and kind of like when I get flagged at security, for us to kind of flag this word to really wrestle with what are the implications, what does it mean, what does it not mean, and so let's now move on and turn our attention to what Paul actually says to slaves and to masters. He writes that slaves or bond servants are to obey their masters, and he gives them six qualifications or attributes of their obedience. He says that you should do so with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, and doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, and knowing that there is a reward. So what is fear and trembling? Fear and trembling, when Paul writes it, is not like if you, uh, you see a clown with a red balloon in the sewer immediately after seeing the movie It, or it's not like what I experienced, although I did, did experience fear and trembling the other day when I opened my back door and a lizard almost fall, fell on me. If you know, that's my biggest fear. That's not the type of fear and trembling that Paul is talking about. Fear and trembling, when Paul uses it, it's a very common uh, phrase, and it is a word that just means awe and respect. And reverence. It's a word that he has used of himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Uh, you might be familiar with Philippians chapter 2 where he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's a word that he encourages all of us to have, this sense of fear and trembling. Again, it is a sense of appropriate awe and reverence toward a person or position. 
And this idea of fear, respect, reverence is, is an idea that we can trace all the way from the beginning of this section on the household code, starting in uh, verse 21 of chapter 5, where he encourages all of us, all Christians are commanded to fear Christ. In verse 33, wives are told to fear their husbands, and here slaves are told to fear their masters. The English words might say reverence or respect in some of those verses, but the underlying Greek word is the exact same in each case, and it is to fear. So the idea here is honor and respect your masters. Something that Paul has written elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he says this, Let all who are under a yoke as bondservants regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So not only are slaves to serve with fear and trembling, but also with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. A sincere heart. They are not to be double-minded. They are to be without ulterior motive, without hypocrisy, not begrudging, which ties into the next few attributes. So let's continue on with verses 6 through 8. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. A few weeks ago, Zach told a story about Carl losing his knife, thinking that maybe he had lost it in preschool. So we're tearing the, the, the building apart, trying to find this knife so that your kids don't end up with his pocket knife. And we finally find it in the dumpster. And that was not my first time to ever go into a dumpster. Uh, I used to work at uh, Marshall's Department Store whenever I was in high school. And I had a couple of buddies. And we were the only guys that were on staff. So it was uh, primarily females that worked there. And then myself, two guys that were also seniors in high school uh, with me. And so we had the privilege of doing garbage duty as the only guys uh, there that were employees. And, uh, and so we loved it because we love to do garbage duty. And it afforded us an opportunity to not have to, uh, you know, rearrange clothes for the hundredth time, but instead to go into the stock room and to try out all the cool stuff, all right? And so you ever seen that, uh, you ever seen the movie Big? And, uh, and there's, a, there's a scene where Tom Hanks is like playing with all the toys in his office. That's kind of what we thought our job was at, uh, at Marshall. So we get in a new wiffle ball set and we think, you know, we need to try this out because Marshall's customers are very demanding. And, uh, and so we would go back there and we'd just play wiffle ball. And, uh, and then we would uh, inevitably have to get around to trash duty. And so we had this huge industrial compactor, all right? So think Death Star and Luke and, uh, and Leia and Han and uh, all those are kind of in this huge trash compactor. And occasionally we'd have to get in there because a cardboard box would get stuck. So we'd have to actually get up on a ladder, climb into it, go in there, and then Almost 100% of the time. It was like there was some sort of a special feeling that we had when somebody else was in there. One of the other guys would walk by and close the door on them. And, uh, and then just leave them in there for maybe five minutes or so just to let them really start breaking up or uh, breaking out in a sweat. I grew up in the Houston area. And so super hot, super humid uh, in there. And, uh, and so that's what we would do. So one day, uh, a buddy of mine has just climbed in there, and uh, the other guy and I decided we're going to shut him in. So we shut him in. We're planning on waiting five minutes, and right that instant, my manager walks back. And, uh, and so we make small talk with her for a couple of minutes, uh, knowing that my buddy can hear, so he's not going to be banging or anything like that. And, uh, and then so we try to encourage her. You know, we, we do the thing where we're talking, and then we kind of move to the other side of the conversation to try to get her to come, but she's not coming 
at all. She's not moving one step. And so we finish up the conversation, and then she starts doing some stalking 10 feet away from uh, the dumpster. And so now we're stuck in this sort of dilemma. We have a predicament on our hands. Do we either open the door and thus reveal to our manager that we violated Marshall's and OSHA policy, or do we just leave him in there? So like an hour later, we come back, and, uh, and he smells so foul, and he is so sweaty. I think actually he ended up uh, having to purchase some clothes from Marshall and, uh, and uh, changing into it. Uh, there. The reason I tell that story is because we, there's kind of this sort of idea, when the cat's away, the mouse will play, right? That's kind of the idea. That's not what Paul says. Paul says that, uh, that even when your master's not watching, someone's always watching, your heavenly master is always watching. Jesus is always watching. He sees all. He knows all. He says, don't merely serve to get by or to please your master's eye, even when their backs are turned serve faithfully in integrity even when no one else is watching your master always is because you have a master in heaven who sees and knows all so not only should your service be sincere and genuine and consistent but also willing and your willingness should match your obedience that's what he says next a couple of weeks ago zach and i uh went to subway immediately after services we had to be back here for something and so we went to services ordered some sandwiches, and I ordered tuna fish. Don't judge me. I know it's not tuna or fish, or I don't know what it is. Don't send me an email and tell me what it is. I don't want to know. But we're in line, and, uh, and, and at one point, one of the, the manager turns to the sandwich artist and, uh, and says, hey, I need you on the register. And, uh, and so this, the sandwich artist kind of uh, rolls her eyes, and she complains visually and verbally. She says, but I want to make sandwiches. And the manager says, but I need you on the register. It's kind of a typical, typical sort of tortured artist thing going on here. And so uh, finally, she goes over to the register, but you can tell she is super unhappy with it. And she let the entire uh, subway know of her uh, displeasure. That's what Paul's writing about here. Paul, Paul writes, don't just obey, but obey with a good will and from the heart. When I think of these sorts of instructions, I remember the story of Joseph. You remember the story of Joseph from the Old Testament? Here is, if ever there's anyone who doesn't deserve to be a slave, it's Joseph. But if ever anyone has ever been faithful as a slave, it is Joseph as well. He's faithful in Potiphar's house, even though he's accused of things that he is innocent of, things that are egregious and, uh, and gross. But he's faithful there. He's faithful in the prison. He's faithful to Pharaoh and his kingdom. Wherever he was, he was faithful. He was willing. He was genuine. He was sincere in the big and the little and the unseen chasms of the prison or in front of the eyes of the entire kingdom. He's faithful, he's willing, he's genuine and sincere in the big and the little. Whether it's bondservant to man or not, Joseph knew that he was a bondservant to Yahweh and he served accordingly knowing that he would receive a reward from him. Paul writes something similar to that idea in the book of Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24, he says, whatever you do, Work heartily, ask for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. I once worked uh, an entire season as a soccer referee, and, and somehow at the end of the year, I just totally forgot to turn in my time card, which means for that entire year, I didn't get paid, unless you count like a, a man screaming in my face while his uh, 
six-year-old daughters right there. I didn't consider that to be a valid form of payment, but that's what I got out of this experience. And the Lord doesn't ultimately leave any debts. He's not indebted to anyone. He repays always, consistently. We may not understand his timing or his wisdom, but he always rewards his people perfectly. Any injustice you experience, he will repay it. Any debt you accrue, he will pay it. And so bond servants are to labor with that perspective in mind. Let's look at verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So we turn our attention from bond servants to masters and we see three points that Paul's going to make. First, do the same. Second, stop your threatening. And third, know that you have the same impartial master. And I think this is where if we really wrestle with the implications of what Paul is saying, how profound these instructions actually are, although they're quite simple on the surface, if we really wrestle with all the implications, we can see him beginning to untie the bonds of slavery that over time will unravel uh, completely. So first thing he says is to do the same. What does that mean? Do the same. Well, looking backwards in the text, he's just said that slaves or servants or bond servants are to do what is good. And so likewise, masters are to do what is good. As verse 8 had said that the Lord repays what good anyone does and what is good to treat your bond servants justly and fairly, to treat them through gospel lenses, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of these implications and applications are infused into this command to do the same to them. In other words, masters, do good to your slaves, ask to the Lord. Don't lord your authority over them, but steward it by serving them. Second, stop your threatening. Threats were one of the most common forms of reinforcement in the ancient world. If you think of sort of the antebellum south, and you think of what was the symbol, the sign of oppression and injustice there, it was the whip, right? That's kind of the symbol, the sign of a master's authority and the abuse of that authority. Well, likewise, in the ancient world, the threat was the symbol, the sign of a master's abuse of his authority. And Paul has just disarmed them. He's not saying that there can be no mention of consequences. He's not saying uh, that. He's saying don't make these extreme uh, consequences. There should be no extreme terrifying consequences as when masters would threaten to break up families or things of that nature that we see in the historical context. So the second thing he says, stop your threatening. And lastly, remember that you have the same impartial master. This is radically revolutionary in that particular context. There, if you go back and you read uh, Jewish literature or Greco-Roman literature, there were a number of writers that would write things about how you should, as a master, treat your slaves justly and fairly. But in general, all of those were pragmatic. So Aristotle, he would write uh, about how you should treat your slaves justly and fairly. But his reasoning was so that they might be more productive. A happy slave is a productive slave is sort of the idea. There was nothing in that context that would ever write something as revolutionary as this. The idea that you have a same, the same master in heaven and that that master is impartial. 
You wouldn't have anybody in that context that would write that the reason that you should treat your slaves justly and fairly and lovingly and kindly is because they are fellow image bearers and that they are also under the same uh, yoke of slavery as you are to the good master that is Jesus Christ. They're under the same creator and redeemer. So not only do they have the same master, but also that master is impartial. So what does that mean? What does it mean for God to be impartial? Literally, it means that God doesn't look on the face or he doesn't receive the face. He doesn't look on outward appearances. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't prefer men to women or rich to poor or he doesn't have a favorite race or ethnicity or socioeconomic class. He's not impressed by our skin color. He's not impressed by our socioeconomic standing. He's not impressed by our bank account. He's not impressed by your title in your job, whether you're the president or the vice president or the owner or the CEO, the CFO. He's not impressed by those kinds of things. He's also not impressed by a degree that we might have or a PhD or whatever it might be. God's not impressed in those sort of things. The kind of things that we tend to boast in God doesn't care about. There's no partiality in him. He doesn't prefer the master or the slave. So again, together, you take all three of these things, do the same, stop your threatening, and you have the same master, and that master is impartial. You take all of these things, you put them together, you allow it to kind of mix with all of the general uh, Christian encourages, uh, encouragement toward love and grace and generosity and so forth, and you can see how over time, although Paul doesn't eradicate the institution immediately, you can see how that is embedded within it itself. Intentionally, there is this unraveling that's going to occur over time. It would have been revolutionary without actually calling for revolution. It's a reformation from within. Be kind. Don't threaten. Recognize that you're no better. In light of these realities, the bonds of slavery were bound to unravel. After all, there's no slaves of men in the Garden of Eden, and there's no slaves of men in paradise, contrary to what some might say. So that's the context of slavery. That's the text of Scripture. What do we do with it? I want to draw out three implications from the text. First one uh, is that this text is really instructive for informing our understanding of work. We can draw a line from this text on forced labor into our modern conception of voluntary uh, labor. Although it's not a straight line, there's not every, we can't just simply unilaterally apply this text to our own context uh, without seeing that there are some differences. But in general, we can draw kind of a dotted line between this text and our understanding of uh, labor. This should inform, to some degree, how we go about our labor. So we might ask a few questions of ourselves. First, do you, in whatever your job is, do you treat your job and boss with the respect and fear of the position? Do you treat your job and boss with respect and fear that the position, regardless of the person, deserves? We've seen before, over and over in this context of these household codes, where Paul's commands are not based upon whether or not someone has earned your respect. Respect is something that's commanded, not just something that is earned. Wives should honor and respect their husbands, even if those husbands aren't worthy of respect in and of themselves. Likewise, for children and parents and slaves and masters, respect is something that's commanded even when it's not earned. 
So do you treat your job and boss with the respect and fear that the position, regardless of the person, deserves? Second, do you labor with a pure heart and good attitude? Third, do you work simply to be seen in advance, or is your primary goal to be faithful? Your primary goal to be the best cobbler that you possibly can, the best salesman that you possibly can. And then fourth, fourth, if you are a boss of any sort, do you treat the people under you kindly and justly and graciously? Do you do unto them as you would have them do unto you, or do you lord your authority over them? That's the first set of implications. I think a second implication of this text concerns our understanding of contentment. And I think it challenges our sort of modern conception of contentment. Remember, Paul is writing this to slaves, which means that happiness and joy are not dependent on your social circumstance. Our flesh kind of clings to this idea, this warped view that we can't be content with our own lot unless it's the same lot as another. Whatever that thing is that you most want, that you look at and you see, if I just had that, then I would be content. I can't be content without that one thing. Paul could write to a slave and say, you can be content. You can be faithful in your lot in life. You can be a slave and possess less freedom, less financial security, less rights and privileges than your master, and yet you can be faithful, and you can thus please the Lord and thus find fulfillment. So my question for all of us is, are we content? Are we content with our marriages or our singleness? with our socioeconomic status, with our job, and on and on we could go. Or do we always feel as though contentment is bound up in my circumstances, as if, as if contentment is some sort of external thing? And if I simply got that, rather than recognizing, no, contentment is this internal reality, that changing the external circumstance is not going to affect. That's the second implication, to find fulfillment in Christ's calling, not in your circumstances. And a third implication of the text is going to relate to the gospel, which is what we celebrate in communion. So what I want to do is I want to pray. I'm going to ask the men to come forward to distribute the elements, and then we'll talk about that third implication as we wait to take the elements together. So, Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that it's good and true and sufficient and right and authoritative. I pray that you would help us, Lord. You would help us. Or not to be, not to stumble over the reality of slavery within the scripture. I pray that some of these differences might help us to better understand what's going on there, what's not going on. I pray that you would help us just to know and love you. I pray that you would help us, Lord, as we see the implications of this life on the way that we labor, Lord, whether we are an employee or an employer. Lord, that we might uh, apply these truths and see the implications. I pray that it might affect the way that we view our contentment, that you might cultivate in our hearts a deeper contentment with who we are because we are content with who you are and what you've done for us, Lord. And so help us this morning. I'm grateful for the reality of communion and what we celebrate. And so as we do so, Lord, would you continue to minister to us, we ask, because you're a good father and you give good gifts. So we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.